0: I'm Cindy Levy, and this is The Barneys Podcast, the show that celebrates fashion, style, culture, but most of all, the personalities who create those things every single day. Samin Nosrat is a writer, teacher, chef, and an all-around lover of food from
1: day one. My mom would make these kotlet sandwiches that I would bring to school, and they were so good, and there'd be like yogurt and pickles and a pita bread. It's just this kind of like brown, amorphous thing. And kids were like, well, that looks like poop. And I just remember feeling sorry for them that they weren't eating this delicious thing. Since she's been cooking professionally at the acclaimed restaurant Chez
0: Panisse in Berkeley and in Italy, among other places, she started to notice there were certain things that made good food good. She distilled those things into four elements. In 2016, her book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, The Art of Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking, became a bestseller and won a James Beard Award. She also became a columnist for the New York Times Magazine. Now she's brought her philosophy of cooking to life in a four-part series on Netflix, a sublime blend of travel and food. And while I had dozens of questions for Samin about everything from gender in the kitchen to which condiments I should start stockpiling, we started where we always do. What are you wearing today, Samin Nosrat?
1: I'm wearing my very favorite outfit, which is these overalls that I, my very favorite brand of clothing is called Toast. Uh They're a British brand. Uh And they actually gave me almost all the clothes that I wore on the show. Ah. And so they're just like the most comfortable, funnest, most me thing. And any day when I don't have to... Do something public <laughs> or visually public, <laughs> I wear them. These overalls are my everything. So thank you for
0: indulging all my, all my oh, fashion was questions. Oh, pretty fun. I'm really
1: glad you asked yeah. about my overalls. So. <laughs>
0: um, so I r- have heard that you started college with the goal of being a doctor or a lawyer, and then you had this amazing singular meal at Chez Panisse. So tell me a little bit about that meal.
1: Well, when I moved to Berkeley for college, I didn't know anything about fancy food or fine dining. I grew up eating delicious home-cooked Persian food. And because I grew up in San Diego, I ate a lot of Mexican food. But I think the only time I went to a fancy restaurant was for my prom dinner. So when I moved to Berkeley and people were talking about Chez Panisse, it didn't really register for me as anything. I just was like, oh, a fancy restaurant that people's parents take them to, but my parents don't take me to those kinds of places. So it sort of went in one ear and out the other. And then the following year I fell in love and my boyfriend was from San Francisco and we spent all of our time together eating and like he would show me all his favorite places from his own childhood. And he had always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. So we saved our money for seven months. We went and it was a Four or five course dinner and dessert was chocolate souffle, and so when the server brought the chocolate souffle, she you know took one look at me. I was wearing a black tank top and a denim skirt. We, I was nineteen. We definitely—I don't think I had discovered eyebrow tweezers yet. I'm sure by then they were pretty charmed. These two young kids were in there, and so she was like, "Would you like me to show you how to eat souffle?" And I said yes. And so she, she is like, "You poke a hole in it with this spoon." and then you pour the sauce in and it was a raspberry sauce. Mm. And that way every bite has sauce. So I did that and she said, how is it? And I said, oh, it's really good, but it would be even better if I could have a glass of cold milk because you know, like everybody wants to have like the warm chocolate thing with the cold milk. And she sort of laughed. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs> and, like, it didn't even occur to me that it was like maybe the rudest thing in the world to tell someone, like, in a restaurant who's a professional how to make their thing better, but I did. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, and so she brought me milk and then she also brought us two glasses of dessert wine to teach us the refined accompaniment. And only like three years later, when I went to Italy and I was schooled in proper milk etiquette, did I learn that in fine dining, It's considered totally gross to drink milk after 10 a.m. Like only babies drink milk, which is why if you go to Italy or France and you ask for a cappuccino at like 4 p.m., they're like, ha ha ha, you American, you know, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I like that confidence, though, that you knew what would improve Alice Waters dish. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And like, I mean, so much of that speaks to the, how personal eating is, you know, and whatever your own childhood memories and nostalgia are always going to affect how something tastes to you. So mm-hmm. of course, there's ways that we can learn and build our palates, but also we're all different and there's beauty in that.
0: So how did you go from having eaten there, that meal that you guys saved all your money up for, to landing a job there?
1: Well, I was so moved to be in this restaurant where I felt above all just totally taken care of. And so I wrote a letter asking for a job as a busser, bussing tables, Mm -hmm. and I brought it in. And they said, oh, you have to take that to the floor manager. So they led me to the floor manager's office. And when she came to the door, it was the souffle lady. And she, (laughs) yeah. She's like, it's the milk girl. Yeah, totally. She's like, milk girl. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she, we kind of like instantly recognized each other, and I'd written this like very impassioned letter. And also, in retrospect now, as a person who's run restaurants before, I totally imagine that she was short-staffed and very desperate. So she was like, "You can start tomorrow." Ooh, amazing. <laughs> and so then, yeah, it was amazing. So the next day when I started, it was I think the twenty-eighth birthday of the restaurant, and it was just a really. It was the, kind of in a big way, the beginning of, you know, my career. Yeah. And it was a shape,
0: Panisse, right, that you were able to break down cooking into those four things that can really make or break a dish, the salt, fat, acid, and heat way of looking at things. Totally. <laughs> it, it seems so deceptively simple, but was there a moment of revelation when it kind of all clicked together for you?
1: I mean, narrative-wise, like as a storyteller, I like to talk about a moment of revelation, but it really (laughs) happened over the course of a year or so. I sort of transitioned from busing into the kitchen, and I worked as an unpaid apprentice for almost two years. And I had this headache. I would come in, and I just had this headache, this low-grade headache for two years, because there was a way where what I saw happening in the kitchen there didn't reflect at all, What I understood cooking to be from cookbooks. Mm. And I didn't get how these chefs knew how to make everything because the menu there changes every single day. And they never look at cookbooks. Mm-hmm. They're not setting a timer to cook the chicken exactly for 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the dials on the ovens were so well worn that a lot of the temperatures had been worn away. Mm -hmm. So they were very much using their senses to cook. And there was a way where the most important sense, of course, was taste. Mm -hmm. So we were always tasting and they were always talking about salt and fat and acid. And these were these elements that every single day we had to balance no matter what we were making. And I did have a moment where I was like, okay, I see, you know, salt, fat, acid, and of course, heat, these are the important things. Mm -hmm. And I went to the chef and I said, I figured it out. It's salt, fat, acid, heat. And he just looked at me like totally nonplussed. And he was like, we all know that, Samine duh. Like, of course we know that. You know, all cooks know that. And I said, well, you know, it's not in any of the books that you guys have told me to read. Nobody sat me down and told me to watch for these four elements. And so at that moment, I was like, I think I'm going to write a book about this one day. And I even went home and I had this legal pad that I started taking notes in. And then, of course, it took me, you know, a lot of years of cooking and learning and understanding and even teaching other people before I was really ready to sit down and write.
0: Yeah. And now the notebook that you went back and wrote it down in, is that the beginning of the now famous manifestation journal that I've heard a lot about?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Different notebooks, different notebooks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I do, I do
0: want to talk about that later because it's, okay. it's, it's such a brilliant thing. Um, one of the things that I think is so appealing about your book is that you really seem to care about what real people go through when they try to cook. And, you know, your approach is incredibly helpful and very attuned to the experience of the everyday cook. I guess assuming that some of that comes from your experience as a teacher.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think both as a teacher and as a person who didn't know anything for a mm-hmm. really long time and also as a writer. You know, one of my favorite authors of all time ended up becoming my writing mentor, Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan. and one of the And one of his talents and things that I think he's strongest at as a writer is kind of being a teacher. And he has this amazing tool that he uses, you know, of experiential journalism, where he goes on a journey as a person who knows nothing. He totally doesn't mind looking like a looking like a person who knows nothing. Mm. And he takes you on this learning journey with him. And so when I sat down to write, and also for the show too, I really wanted to capture that. Mm. And I realized that I couldn't because it was my job to be the authority. And so um, if I couldn't come on the journey with you, then the tool that I could use was to remember exactly how it felt to be in your position, Mm -hmm. to be the person who didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And so very often I tell stories of the mistakes that I made, or Mm -hmm. I even replicate the mistakes that I made and let those become sort of the tools of teaching. Yeah, I found that that really worked in the classes. I found that that really worked in the book. And I think even like in the show, I think for me, I just am... completely unconcerned with looking like a dope, you know? Mm-hmm. And so and so it's okay if I trip, you know, or mm-hmm. like it's okay. There some of the funniest and my favorite moments in the show are like when I almost fall out of the boat in Japan or like <laughs> like I don't mind looking silly because I know that like what we as humans are all worried about is looking silly. Right. So (laughs) maybe if you see me looking silly and yet like I can go on and roast a chicken, then like if you feel silly, you can go roast a chicken too. Let's talk a little bit more about the about the TV show. I've spent my entire life in pursuit of flavor. I've traveled the world to explore the things that define good cooking. Let me get some forks. (laughs) No matter where I go, the same elements make food delicious. You're laughing and crying. It's it's laughing and crying. That's, that's pretty much the story of my life. Salt, fat, acid, and heat. Just four basic elements can make or break a dish. And
0: congratulations because, you Thank know, you. It's, it's just out, but people are really loving it. And one headline that I just read is, Salt, fat, acid, heat is the feminist future of TV shows, and I'm so ready for it. <laughs> whoa! Um, Is that great? Who wrote <laughs> that where
1: was that published? I think that
0: was Bustle, you know. And I think that's partly because it's so refreshing, you know, not to, just to see you so comfortable, uh, you know, on the show and in your profession, but also how many women, other women, and women of color are at the front and center of this series. I'm curious about your process and how much you, you know, you think about trying to feature people who don't typically get. Credit for their work.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely intentional. And I think, especially when like the wave of media is headed in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. it had to be intentional. Yeah. You know, more than being proud of it, I'm just so excited that people love the show. But I kind of can't believe that people are noticing all of the choices. Yeah. And that I think is one of the most gratifying thing, not only that they're noticing them, but they're appreciating them, because a lot of it meant doing a lot more work. Uh. But for me, I think, you know, I always say, if I had an opportunity to go back to graduate school, I would write a dissertation on gender in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I have spent a long time thinking about, and one day I would like to write about is the fact that, you know, people have been cooking for 10,000 years, that was when like, we moved away from foraging and hunting gathering into Mm -hmm. like agriculture. And since that time, it's basically been women who have done the majority of the cooking. Mm -hmm. And maybe 200 years ago is when cooking was professionalized. And at that time, when there was suddenly a sort of like restaurants and kitchens and pay and glory, a lot of that that space that was historically a very feminine space became a masculine space. Mm-hmm. And so who has gotten, you know, the public attention for this work over the last couple hundred years is, is you know, doesn't really reflect who's actually been doing the work for a much longer time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always thinking, like, how can I turn attention toward the people who haven't been getting it. And for me, with this show, I very much felt like it could possibly be my only shot. And I had to do the best that Mm -hmm. I could do with it. And that meant finding people who wouldn't or aren't having their stories told. Mm -hmm. And um, not only like telling their story, but giving them a chance to tell their own story. Mm. And what were some of the choices that meant the most to you personally, or that you were most excited about? The two main ones were featuring home cooks and honoring home cooks, Mm -hmm. because from the beginning, just like with the book, I was really clear that this was a show for home cooks Mm -hmm. and about home cooks. And I feel like most shows really focus on professional cooks Mm -hmm. and chefs and restaurants. Mm -hmm. So that was a big part of it. And also... People of color, um, people who may not, you know, be getting the credit or attention, like the beekeepers in the Mexico episode, mm-hmm. come from a three thousand year long tradition of having a relationship with those melipona bees. Mm. Yet that was something I had only heard about for the first time, like three years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, more people should know about this extraordinary stuff. Let's go back to how you
0: learned to cook. Personally, I mean, in you know the pre-college years before the epic meal at Chez Panisse, <laughs> you, you know, you've talked about your mom and how she was such an amazing cook, and that she made an effort to cook Persian food to connect you with Iranian culture in that way. Um, and I think I heard you say that you were still sometimes jealous of sort of the the classic PB and J when that other kids had when you when you went to school. <laughs> was there a moment when you stopped being jealous of the food that other kids had and started really feeling in sync with what was in your home?
1: Yeah. I mean, I let me clarify what I... So I remember when I was in kindergarten, my mom, there's a Persian dish called kotlet, Mm -hmm. which sounds like cutlet, but it's more like... Meat, meatloaf or something like small meatloaves or meatballs, and so my mom would make these kotlet sandwiches that I would bring to school, Mm -hmm. and they were so good, and there'd be like Mm -hmm. yogurt and pickles and a pita bread. Oh my god, that sounds so good. But it's just this kind of like brown amorphous thing, and kids were like, "Well, that looks like poop," Mm -hmm. and I just remember feeling sorry for them that they weren't Mm -hmm. eating this delicious thing, Mm -hmm. rather than like that. A lot of things ruffled my feathers. Mm-hmm. But like comments about my food never did. Mm-hmm. So I on the one hand, like I loved my food and I was really proud of it. On the other hand, I also just wanted what the other kids had. I just wanted both. Right. <laughs> what were some So of- I didn't want it instead. <laughs> I wanted both. Right. What were
0: some of her her other dishes that you loved back then?
1: Oh, this is so weird and not very Iranian at all, but like so weird and wonderful thing that she would make us for lunch sometimes is if there was leftover spaghetti, she'd put it in a pita pocket. So we had like a double carb situation. Oh, my God. A spaghetti sandwich. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> it was so good. I feel like you could actually create an entire fast food chain based on spaghetti and a pita.
1: Totally. Totally. <laughs> So that one was pretty good. Uh (laughs) Um, But I had a series of favorite foods as a kid. Um, Tachin, Mm -hmm. which is um, my mom typically made it with chicken, but sometimes it's made with lamb that's marinated overnight with yogurt and saffron and Mm -hmm. lemon. And then the rice gets cooked the first time and then everything gets tossed with this yogurt marinade. Mm -hmm. So it all cooks up almost into this like pudding texture like a rice pudding texture mm-hmm. but with that same crispy rice on the bottom and the whole thing is just this fragrant floral saffron it's kind of like biryani where the chicken's yeah. buried in between oh it's so oh, that good. sounds
0: so good so you know we were joking before about your your now famous manifestation journal and um you know first of all does that actually exist and tell me a little bit ab- about it and how long you've
1: had it Oh yeah, it definitely exists. It's on my bedside table. I think I've had it not quite ten years, maybe like mm-hmm. almost ten years. Mm-hmm. It's also sort of transformed over the years. In the beginning, I think it was a little bit more about what I wanted to own or have. Mm-hmm. I also was like cutting out pictures from Martha Stewart magazine of like the way I wanted my kitchen to look.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and so
1: all those things are real things and valid. Their- Yeah, totally. And so – but now it's become a place where I check in about once or twice a year or on the eve of like some large milestone. Early on, I remember I made a list of sort of all these professional goals, including a list of all the publications I would like to write for, Mm -hmm. the very specific sort of vision of a book deal I would like to have one day, Um, a favorite was – bay leaf pinata. I wanted to make a pinata out of bay leaves. Another favorite, a classic was get my chin hairs under control, <laughs> which I'm happy to report happened. <laughs> oh I love that like collaborating with Oprah and get chin yeah. hairs under control yeah. are on the same. list. are on the list. same page. But same page. Yeah. That is life. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe I would argue that getting my chin hairs under control is um, one step on the journey to collaborating with (laughs) Oprah. (laughs) Quite
0: quite possibly, but probably not required. Yeah. (laughs) You know, when I I hear you talk about that, and it strikes me that sometimes we don't do that because even if the journal is only going to be read by you, you know, once you – once you have something on a list, there is that feeling of like, well what if somebody sees this and will they think it's, you know, will will they think these are outlandish goals and we kind of we self-monitor so Oh, much. totally.
1: Totally. I do think giving yourself permission to ask for the thing or even dare to dream that a thing is possible, Mm -hmm. is a really important step on the way to making that thing happen. Mm -hmm. And I also – because I mean, this is also – I'm a writer, and I've always been a reader my whole life, and I believe very strongly in the power of words. Mm -hmm. And I think putting language to ideas and to feelings is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that really is what's at the root of this manifestation journal is if I take the time – to find the words for something that I hope happens Mm -hmm. is the first step for me to, to then focus and be able to like create a vision to work toward. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So on behalf of all home cooks, first of all, what do I make for dinner when there is nothing to make for dinner? Like, what do you do? This may happen
1: to you as well, where, you know, you get. It happens all the time. Yeah. Like, what's your, what are your go-tos? I have gotten better at like preparing for that eventuality Mm -hmm. by having a pretty well-stocked Pantry and a pretty well stocked freezer full of frozen vegetables, and a pretty well stocked condiment section in my fridge. So, with those three things, I can sort of make up always a pasta with some vegetables, you know, beyond just the typical mayo, ketchup, mustard that most people
0: listening probably have. What else should we be stocking that will help us? Oh,
1: I love well. You, I mean, it's up to you, but I love sauerkraut and kimchi. I always have those mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like all manner of hot sauces from all the countries. Mm-hmm. And it's often because those are sources of acid and salt. And so mm-hmm. it's like a condiment is the thing that's going to get your dish perfectly right in the last minute.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You were talking before about the importance of
0: confessing your mistakes. What's the worst idea for a dish you ever had?
1: Uh, whoa! This is a good one. <laughs> uh, well, I I remember I was really proud of this. I even Instagrammed it, and it was I was like, I'm going to invent something new where I cook all these different beautiful vegetables I just got at the farmers market together and make like a hash. Even though I was breaking all of my own rules, which is treat vegetables individually because they have all different qualities and need to be cooked separately. And I remember I posted this thing. And it was so beautiful with like purple radicchio and and winter squash. And my friend who's another cook commented, she's like, that's going to be gross. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like it's gonna and it was totally gross it just turned into a big mush you know (laughs) I
0: I find that anecdote incredibly reassuring (laughs) Samin thank you so much I have to go eat an extremely large meal now
1: awesome thank you so much Samin
0: Nosrat is a writer teacher and chef you can watch her do her thing on her show salt fat acid heat now streaming on Netflix but a warning do not watch it when you're hungry For more inspiration, you can follow her on social media at Chow Samin, C-I-A-O-S-A-M-I-N. The Barneys Podcast is produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. Our associate producer is Oloakemi Aladasui. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.
1: Oh, well, we just had lunch and I was like, how can I tinker with this lunch? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that must be an occupational hazard, right? Yeah, no totally. matter where you eat, you want to make it better.